Hello and welcome to Sotha Symposium. I'm one of your hosts, Doug Daffin. And I'm the other one, I guess, Chris Bendeman. And today we're here to speak to you about sophistry and symposiums. So, uh, we, this is Sophist Symposium. Uh, the first thing you should understand about this podcast is our primary purpose here uh, is to fuck around, basically. Uh, as you'll soon learn about sophistry, because Doug here is uh, about to tell me and about to tell you, um, we're not going to accomplish anything here. We're probably not going to arrive at any kind of valuable conclusions. We're not going to put anything on the table that is some kind of great new conclusion of, of fact and metaphysics that you can really take home and, and believe in. You may be able to chew on it for a while. Uh, you'll probably disagree with a lot of what we say. You'll probably recognize that we're wrong about a lot of what we say because, frankly, this conversation is a couple of people who really don't know what they're talking about, talking about stuff. Finally, part of the fact that we are basically not taking anything seriously, we are essentially pre-gaming right now. Yes. So, in fact, we're going to have a drink of the day every time we do this, or drink of the night. Uh, we're going to have our drink here, and we encourage you to play along. In fact, we're even going to have a drinking game. Remember, it's not a real symposium unless drinks are involved. And Doug's going to explain that one to you in short order. First thing that's going to happen is I'm going to explain to you the drink we have in front of us today. Doug doesn't know about it yet. It is a variation on a Cosmopolitan. It's very simple. It's got a lot of cranberry in it. It's got a lot of vodka in it. I use Russian Standard Vodka, which has been distilled 200 times through platinum, I'm told, that has been mined from the Ural Mountains. Pretty great. Um, it's 80 proof. It's it's 80 proof. The drink is probably not far from because there's a lot of vodka in here. Um, I showed this drink to my girlfriend of right now uh, about a year ago. And she suggested that because I was a law student, because it's a very fruity, very candy flavored drink, as Doug will find out soon. And because it's a, a flavor of pink, I should call it the L. Woods. What do you think of that? I like that name. I don't get the reference, but I like the name. Have you never seen Legally Blonde? Yes, okay. Okay, I was going to say, we're going to, never mind, we're going to have a a podcast about Legally Blonde. All right, well, so that's that. Now, I want Doug to launch into this. One of the things you should know about this, uh, the format here, is that every week one of us is going to pick a topic area that they're going to know something about. And Um, the other one picks a drink of the day. Um, which Chris today was our drink of the day picker, and I was the topic picker. But one of the rules we hold ourselves to is that we'll have a drinking game every night. The drinking rules for tonight's game are that every time we pronounce a Greek name, we take a drink. Every time we make a parallel to some modern situation, we take a drink. And every time we mention our president, Donald Trump, we take a drink. Now, you should realize right off the bat that some of these things are probably going to happen more often than others. Although, right now, I can't tell you which are going to happen more often than others. I have my bets on modern parallels. Um, the other thing is, <laughs> we assume that we're going to mispronounce every Greek name. So, we mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, oh, that's true. All right. Drink number one, ladies and gentlemen. Mm, it is very candy It's very candy, isn't it? Yes. That is because I think the sweet vermouth mixes with the cranberry juice. It's good stuff going on. I think I also just cheated and told the audience another one of my uh, ingredients. And if I'm perfectly honest, they know basically all of them now. So there goes my secret drink. So you know that. Look at that. The podcast already valuable. And now, Doug, I think, let's begin. All right. So we're going to begin by talking about a symposium. And today, in modern times... All right. So that's drink number two. I think Doug's after me at this point. 
Uh, symposiums are like these speaker events. Um, at the law school, there was one today, and someone. Okay, hang on a second. So that's another drink because you just talked about something that happened today, and there was a symposium setting. It's a continual. It, is it all going to be one? I think. Okay, you can talk about the subject area, but you said symposium, and then you I'll said, take a drink. And, I'll take a drink because mm-hmm. I want a drink, not because I broke the rules. Okay. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> Yeah, and the symposium today was a guest speaker, um, and that's kind of what you get now for the word symposium is a fancy name for a guest speaker. They're misusing the word symposium. Uh, symposium is a Greek word, Greek-derived word, and it was basically a drinking party. It was exactly a drinking party. Um, if you check the words in the etymology of uh, the, the words, it means drinking party. And historically, they were just fancy drinking parties. Now, now let's spin something out for a second, because there was something very interesting you did share with me this week, which is the Latin equivalent of symposium. What is it? Uh, it was conference? It was, uh, well, I think really it was convention. Convene. Yeah, convention. That was it. Right. That comes from convene, which convenum... Is with wine. With wine. Right. And I still didn't fact check that, so there's your first sophism right there. That's very that's very We're taking true. it to be true. Yeah, if we're gonna pull it from Wiki and frankly, just because it fits with the view that we want to believe in the world, that is we're gonna textbook we're gonna sophism. It, we're doing it. Now you can explain that one in a second. I don't know if you want to talk more about symposiums. I do. And okay. I wanna talk about how it's the perfect form. For philosophical discussion, I mispronounced the Greek. All right, here we go. Word. That's drink number three. Or two, if I'm counting. I mean, my favorite part of this cup, this little thing, is that um, very soon we're going to forget to count, or we're going to miscount, and you will see the level of successful symposium right. making that we're having here. So Aristotle, one of his books was the Symposium, and we mentioned it in one of my. Uh, philosophy classes in undergrad, and um, it was the setting was a symposium, a drinking party, where um, I'm trying really hard not to mispronounce his name, uh, Socrates. I feel confident that that's a correct pronunciation. Right. So Socrates was the host, and he was the speaker, but. Um, I never read the symposium because we didn't actually learn anything in that uh, in that philosophy class. Mm. But what I think some why I think the symposium is the ultimate form of philosophical discussion it's it's two things. Uh, number one is that drunkenness encourages conversation. Okay. Um, number two, and by ultimate form, I actually meant ultimate form of sophist discussion, but whatever, whatever. Yeah, number two is that um, it kind of has some built-in speaking rules. So number one is that if you're drinking, you can't interrupt someone because you're drinking. Uh, Number two is that if you want to drink, you have to stop talking. So like if your throat gets dry, it means you've been talking for too long. So, any thoughts on that, Chris? So, okay, this is very. I want to drink, so so great. See, the <laughs> see, here's what's really beautiful. That's how Donald Trump would pronounce it. Oh, oh, oh. 
I took a double drink. Um, so here's what's beautiful about what you just did, because you didn't need to. What's hilarious about setting up a symposium like in that fashion is to say, well, you decided that you were done talking and that I should now talk. All you need to do is raise the glass, and it's sort of a, you know, it's a turnover all by itself. You starting to drink is sort of the motivator. Now, here's the other thing. I don't think there is much of a motivation at these places to drink because your your throat is parched. I think a drinking party sort of lends itself in the other direction. I think it's more that you have two contravening desires, the desire to talk and the desire to drink, each of which actually is motivating the other in, let's call it a virtuous cycle. Here's, here's a thought for you, though. We know from later history that there was an explosion of parlor societies in places like France and other places in Western Europe that, and no, that's not a modern parallel, don't you come after me, um, that exploded around coffee. When coffee made its way into the uh, upper-class household or the middle-class household, it inspired a whole generation of intellectual thought. So, obviously the ancients didn't have coffee. But, is it really true that the drinking party inspires good philosophical discussion? I think it inspires good discussion simply because turnover is higher when you have drinking. Whether I think it also promotes philosophical discussion um, because I, I, you get a bunch of smart people in a room, you tell them we're going to discuss something smart, and then a discussion happens, um, which is kind of... Kind of what's happening right now? Is that yeah, where that was going? Yeah, I except mean, I didn't want to call us both smart. I mean that... <laughs> because, like, it's one thing to, to compliment... My friend, and ah. it's another thing to compliment myself. Oh, I see. I see. So right. I think Chris all, is a genius. All right, great. I also think Doug is very intelligent, which means that now we've, now we've right. uh, complimented each other, which is great. The audience at home can make their own assessment. I imagine differently than we... <laughs> the audience, I think you're brilliant too, but hey. that's because I probably know who you are. Oh, well, in many cases, that's going to be true. At some point, we'll probably learn to do shout-outs, but only when they deserve it. Um... Yeah, man. I think that what's interesting about that is of the drugs, and we'll call them drugs, I think, mm -hmm. that have to do with gatherings. I think weed's going to make you want to talk. Mm -hmm. Coffee's going to make you want to talk mm -hmm. a lot. It's interesting to me that alcohol would make anyone – I mean I know that it does, but I know that it does from the perspective of like a college student. I think that – I think that tends to fade as you sort of grow up. How old were these Greek philosophers? If you, do you know? I imagine they were in their 30s. In their 30s? Yes. Really? I'm, I kind of think that way, but I mean, they could have been in their 50s for all I know. Is that just an opinion that you have? It's yes. completely unsupported by anything? Yes. Beautiful. Well, that's a very sophist, sophist situation. It's sophisticated, if you ask me. Uh, I don't know if that... Is that the same ring word? I think so. Do you? Probably. We have nothing to back it up. No. Nope. Well, we can't just be doing that all the time. So We can well, be I doing mean, that. And that's why we call this the Sophist Symposium. It is the Sophist Symposium. Or that's half the reason. So that's half. It. And we've talked, we've only talked about half so far. We keep using, we keep throwing this word around and we haven't let them know what's going on. Yeah. So Sophistry, which is going to be the main part of our discussion tonight, okay. is an intellectual term that described the pre-Socratics. 
um, the philosophers that came before Socrates. Okay. And those sophists were people who claimed that they knew something, who charged for their teaching. Um, and those are the two major things I remember about them. But they were, they were high class educators. Um, and what happened was, uh, Socrates burst onto the scene. And he triumphantly declared that the only thing I know is that I know nothing else. Else. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I add that else on there to make it not a paradox. But it's not his statement. Well, all he didn't he say it was it was Aristotle's statement about uh, Socrates. Oh, it's all one thing because okay. well, the thing is, um, Aristotle is who we actually derive most of our philosophy from, and he was the student of uh, Socrates. And we get Socrates' teachings through, like, Aristotle's books and stuff describing what Socrates would say to him. Right. Um, whether or not Socrates actually did those things, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But what happened now, basically, or since then, is that there's been a, um, a war between the two terms not a not an actual war but sort of like a cultural war okay or a, an intellectual war mm. and what it seems like is that philosophy is one because we consider philosophy the you know intellectual pursuit of reason or of knowledge through reason well is that really fair because i think you just described science i think more philosophy is more like our attempts to approach metaphysical truths through non non material means. That's that's happened since um, what when science really broke out as because science is a philosophy. Interesting. I would have thought that, and it, it, it's sort of a post philosophy. It's a post philosophy. Yeah. So what happens is that. Um, you get science now, and they don't try to prove knowledge through inductive reason, um, which was what philosophy was. It was it was the pursuit of knowledge through inductive reasoning, right. which was, you know, if you see smoke coming out of the building, there's a fire in the building, mm -hmm. um, because there might just be a smoke machine in the building, whereas the scientists will go and they'll you know, go inside the building and look, or they'll build a building and then try to get smoke to come out of it, or they'll they'll do the scientific method. Right. They'll, so, they'll hypothesize that there is or isn't a fire, and then they'll go check and see if they can disprove their theory. Right. Okay. So, um, but philosophy, as I was saying, beat, uh, beat sophism in the sense that uh, sophis sophistry is sort of a highbrow insult you throw at someone, mm -hmm. um, whereas you know, philosophy is generally deemed as a good thing. I think that's fair. It certainly had a lot of champions through time. Right. Um, but something I want to argue is that that didn't actually happen because when you go to a philosophy class, it's taught by a philosophy professor who's being paid money to teach you and who gives you tests at the end of the year that are based on actual knowledge. Okay. As in they have actual answers. So... It's the opposite of, and what um, Socrates... Okay, that's definitely but, wrong. We're going to take a drink on that one. And what Socrates 
uh, was actively fighting against is what the philosophy teachers are in this day. Oh, okay. Hang on. Now, there's a lot going on there. So, you're telling me what exactly? What What did Socrates have a complaint about that we have today? Um, he complained about people who argued that they actually knew things mm -hmm. and people who would teach those things that they actually knew for money. Okay. So, first off, we are talking about modern versions of the debate. So, that's going to be a drink right off the bat. Yes. Secondly, okay, so, so here's, my, here's my layman's complaint about that assertion. Aren't philosophers today, or teachers of philosophers today, just being Cartesian scholars? Aren't they just saying philosophy has taught us that there are things we do know? Or would your asser assertion be that even Descartes had failed the test of being a philosopher, that even he was being a sophist? Well, I specifically mean the philosophy professors because sure. simply they give out exams right. and those exams have right answers. But even Descartes said there are things he knows, for example, right. that he exists. I wonder if Socrates would have even accepted the premise that he exists. I'm curious about that too. And this is why a lot of people won't say that uh, philosophy started with Socrates. They'll say it started with Aristotle. Okay. Because Aristotle was a bit more reasonable. Um, Socrates, if you don't know... Uh, basically annoyed people so much that the state sentenced his death Yeah, um, for corrupting the youth. Well, but what he would... Because he got executed for sophistry. Isn't that true? He got executed for corrupting the youth. My, my, but okay. essentially he got executed because he was super annoying because what he would do is he would accost people on the streets um, telling them that they don't know anything and then like... If they'd answer, you know, oh, I do know this, he'd, he'd do that thing, you know, little kids do. Oh, but why is that? Why is that? Until people came up with no answer at all, because that's always what that ends up in. I have to imagine that these, these people walking around the street would see that behavior mimicked by their young children and probably thought to themselves, this is all Socrates' fault, which, fair enough, I guess. I think... Um, the corrupting the youth was a trumped-up charge. Okay, well, I, we're going to take a drink on that, not because it's fair to, but because that it's is true. right. Yeah, I think it was, but I think it was a a false charge, and essentially all they wanted to do was exile Socrates. This is in another one of Aristotle's books. That's a play, I think, on Socrates's uh, trial, and Socrates. Uh, wouldn't sell out for the exile, basically. He he said that he'd take the actual punishment for the crime he did of um, corrupting the youth, and he drank hemlock, which was a poison. Why, do you think, why did he do that? Um, I mean, he wanted to martyr himself, I think. Martyr for what? Uh, because he was an insufferable asshole. <laughs> martyr up for the cause of the insufferable asshole? Yeah. Because that's the best way you can... It, like, that's the best way... He was an uncompromising asshole. I suppose that's true, and I suppose there's something beautiful about that, but it's just such a funny thing to martyr yourself for. Uh, I've got a professor who says that there's, there's just no way to justify what he did. 
And my professor is speaking from the perspective of a guy who knows a lot about the citizen's relation to the state mm -hmm. and the obligations of the state to the citizen. And he's speaking from the perspective of authors uh, like Hobbes and Locke and, you know. Right. So not a position of sophistry. Not a position of sophistry at all. Although you could make the argument, I think, at a certain point, if you're, if you're going from Hobbes and Locke, both of whom definitely thought they knew things and wanted to tell people about the things they knew. But, you know, you're talking about a guy who, my professor says, there's no excuse for taking your own life or accepting the punishment of the state. That if, if there's any purpose for a state, it shouldn't be to execute you. Uh, and if it does, then you at least have to feel some confidence about the reason they're executing you. And in this case, I mean, what are they executing this guy for? Yeah, but I guess you could ask the same questions about Jesus because... Okay. Like, he had his... He, he he didn't martyr himself. The Romans martyred him. But um, from the versions of the trial with Pontius Pilate that I know, um, Jesus refused to answer uh, questions and stuck that would have set him free and stuck to his... his uh, Faith, that's if you will. that's very strange. I mean, even well, Jesus was a sophist, wasn't he? I wouldn't argue that. I think suppose he had divine knowledge in his story. Ooh, and divine knowledge means that he's probably one of the few people who actually aren't sophists. I actually knew something. Now, here's something really interesting: is that because what you just said implies a belief that the only true knowledge is knowledge by revelation. It's not. It's just that knowledge by revelation is true knowledge. So what is it that makes a person not a sophist? Is it the source of their knowledge? Well, I don't think scientists are sophists. Okay. In a sense that I, I think I definitely did um, describe it incorrectly when I specifically said, you know, it's people who know things and then teach the things they know for money. Um, which is, I think, all I've said about sophistry, but that's because I was—I didn't read the Wikipedia page on it today. I'm not so sure that really helps either way. Well, well, I think what you specified was that it's people who think they know things. Right. Which sort of implies a difference between the people who think they know things and teach them and okay. the people who know things. Yeah, thank you. You're okay. right. So, or at least I think you're right. Well, listen to that. So... Um, essentially, I don't. I think good scientists aren't sophists, uh, in the sense that they base they they do things in a sense like philosophy again to go back to that discussion. But if philosophy is a trail of if A then B, mm. in a sense, and scientists are definitely a trail of if A then B because they try to prove they try to prove that basically. That's you, that's. The form of a hypothesis. Now, this is a very little fiddly little argument, but do scientists try to prove anything, or do they just engage in disproving things until they can feel reasonably confident in the theory? I think they do a bit of both. Okay. I think they mostly do what you said because um, it's a lot easier to disprove things than to prove things. Mm -hmm. um, so, I but I don't think scientists are sophists, or at least good scientists. Um, can you, can, can you, here's something very interesting. So we've just set up this dichotomy between scientists yeah. and well, good scientists and right. a sophist. 
We've also and by good scientists, I mean one who properly follows the scientific method. Sure, and here's what's a beautiful thing about that statement. The scientific process, by definition, is never the pursuit of actually knowing anything, but rather the pursuit of disproving things that you... Uh, coming up with hypotheses and disproving them. Right. So I think that acknowledgement is part of what makes them not a sophist. And here's what I mean by that. A scientist only ever tells you what they don't know. Or rather, what they know isn't true. So a scientist will say, I know. I mean, what's the old Edison line? I've got a thousand ways to not make a light. I mean, that's not entirely true, though, because like Newton will give you gravity laws. He'll give you gravity theories. Right? I mean, the, the yeah. notion that we have laws, I think, is a... Is a but, or, like, E equals MC squared, you know, that's Einstein, but that's... Mathematical. Like, yeah, but that's a proof, you know, it's it's a law. It's not saying... It's it's disproving E equals anything else, but it's also proving that E equals MC squared. Oh, yeah, I'll give you that one. And I think that mathematical proofs probably was all the, belong in a different category. But I mean things like the cutting edge of science usually relies upon... Our best guess based on what we know isn't true. So you, you can come up with... Or um, lately when people proved the um, the Higgs boson existed. Exists. Yes. Well, I think, again, there it was a matter of... But it's not, it's not... I guess it's true. It's not that they're saying it exists. It's saying they found proof that it exists. Right. Or... or I mean, it's things like, I'm talking about things like, I mean, first off, I think we have to agree that the scientific method is only the process of picking hypotheses, and the only success state in the scientific process is when you've failed to disprove something. And failing to disprove something is when you start to accomplish the creation of theorems. And these theorems are only so good as long as they last. I mean, Newton's theories were good, and but you know as well relativity. as I do. Yes, you know as well as I do that Newton's theories only lasted for so long. Right. Um, and every theory to come. I mean, right now, the Copenhagen theory of uh, figuring out where electrons are in a cloud around an object, that's that's being disproven. And it's, you know, we're fighting for that all the time. And yes, I recognize we're talking about modern parallels to a lot of stuff right now. So there's our drink. Right. Or one drink for that whole thing. Well, you know, to take it easy on ourselves sometimes. Right. So... I guess I have a question okay. for you that I'm curious on your opinion of. Are bloggers sophists? Are bloggers sophists? Because, and I know that some aren't, some aren't, obviously. Um, because well, I'm not even ready to go there yet. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's a modern... One of the modern features of mass communication is that everyone will tell you anything um, online. And if that isn't, and if online isn't a forum for sophistry, uh, then, you know, the, this, I was about to say the sky isn't blue, but it's nighttime. Well, so the sky is, in fact, uh, I don't know what, I mean, it's you can not really alternatively labeled the sky, whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, we could do some alternative facts right. if you want. In fact, I'm going to call but, two drinks right now because one, bloggers, and two, I just said alternative facts, which frankly counts as our category three rule, so. Yes. Now, let's dig into this for a second. So you're, you're talking about bloggers. Now, I assume you're talking about the bloggers who make assertions about things in the world. Well, I'm talking about any blogger, and that's why I think we should split it up between groups of bloggers. Well, who do you think are the non-sophist bloggers? Um, I think that the non-sophist bloggers are bloggers who speak about um, how they feel about a certain, certain circumstance. Can they know those things for sure? 
They can't, but I give them the benefit of the doubt because it's a personal thing. Okay, so you don't want to have a conversation about the philosophy of, of knowledge, basically. Or at least if you do want well, to have that conversation, you want to limit it to, if you think you believe something, we're going to give you that. No, it's just, if you're, I, my converse, my idea is that if you're blogging about your feelings about a particular subject, you get a free pass because I'm going to assume you're not lying about your feelings. Okay, so this is really an evidentiary, you're making an evidentiary legal argument yes. about, okay, that's fair. Um, but outside of that, what about personal experiences they have in the world? Like I de like personal bloggers. So yeah, and this is this is where the discussion I think gets really interesting. Okay. Because what you get is in essence it's sophistry and philosophy, again assuming that what they say is true, because you get truth about their perspective on whatever event they experience that they're writing about. But at the same time, um, as I think we both know, perspective only grants you so much actual knowledge of the subject in question. Okay. All right. So, so here is the interesting thing. If that's true, then shouldn't we just grant to any blogger who even is just making a blog about their travels or a diary or just a professional journal? Aren't they just talking about their personal experience? And every time they say a thing is, you just substitute, I experience this as, I perceive it as, I think of it as. Absolutely. So are they engaging in sophistry or are these useful linguistic shorthands for really what's happening, which is a display of perception, perspective? I think it comes down to how pretentious the blogger is. Mm. Um, and that if, I, I think really good bloggers will acknowledge that all they're saying are they're, especially let's stick with travel bloggers, mm -hmm. all they're talking about is how much they enjoyed wherever they traveled or they didn't enjoy wherever they traveled. Um, and I think the, the really good bloggers stick to that. But then there are other sophist bloggers, I'd say, who go, you know, and they might say go to North Korea and get the North Korea travel package sponsored by Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. And these uh, days. Yeah, these days. <laughs> and what they the the North Korea experience guides you through, you know, fake shops and fake cities. And uh yeah, they might look at those fake things and not have the perspective to realize it's all fake, like if you've seen the interview how um, yeah. James Franco was at the beginning. The interview, and, which is definitely a historical work and absolutely a good source for our discussion. Yeah. And um, anyways, what you, what you get is someone who's taking their perception of something and saying that this is the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that is sophistry. I think that you're, it's very interesting you bring up the travel blog because I think the travel blog is the most common place that you'll see somebody giving disclaimers like, this was my experience and won't necessarily be everybody's, which is maybe the most philosophically interesting disclaimer you can have on a blog of any sort. Well, I think it's, it's like a combination of Socrates's all I know is that I know nothing else and right. um, Descartes' I think, therefore I am combination that's right what so mean? what you what you get is um all i know is what i think and that i experience and yeah. what i experience right okay. all i know is what i experience and all i know and all i can say about that is i experienced it okay fair enough 
So even though, well, I mean, it goes one extra step because I think that a, a Cartesian would note that a person can only claim what they think they experienced. But at a certain point, like you said, you have to give to people what they think they experienced for all intents and purposes they did. Right. So, I mean, a travel blog might be lying and he never actually left his apartment. Fair. But, you know. If he says, right. I only know what I know. Right. Even right. if he doesn't know it, he's not making any claims. Right. We're just, we're just assuming for the benefit of the doubt that they're speaking truthfully about their experience. Sure. Here's something really interesting, though. What happens when you run into the problem, and I think you run into this head first, is the easy thing about philosophy and the hard thing about sophistry, which almost turns their relationship on its head, is the following. A, a philosopher can claim all day things that can never be disclaimed. I can say my personal beliefs or experiences on things, and there's no amount of evidence you can stack against me to show that those things are not true. Well, Ergo, unless I have proof you never left your apartment. Which, even if you did that, I could say, you may say that. However, my experiences are these, and you would have to prove to me that I that it is true that both you can show that I never left my apartment and also true that I didn't experience this trip, right. which how can you do that? So it's almost like a philo a strict adherence to Socratic philosophy would require you to go almost nowhere valuable with it, which I think is one of the fundamental problems with traditional views on sophistry. And I... I absolutely agree with that because if we ever want to get anywhere in the world, we have to um, believe we actually know something about anything. Yeah. Which is to say, you know, if we want to build a house, we have to pretend we know that the, you know, we have to set a foundation that we have to build the house. I don't know how to build a house. I don't kind know of how to build a house here. at all. Right, but we actually don't know how to build a house. Right. Someone who builds a house at least admits that they know how to build a house. Or they think they do, but the thing is right. that whatever, whatever about all of these things, it's the old joke, right? That, you know, a person who... What, what's the class of philosophy that basically rejects everything that you think you know and that seeks to prove it anew each time? I don't know. There's, there's a version of this. And I think the old joke is, well, those people can say what they want, but you notice they always leave a room through the door and not the window. There's sort of a pragmatism underlying it. Yeah. But at the same time, in these days, there's a countervailing principle, and we're going we're gonna to take a break on this line for specific reasons. There's a countervailing principle these days that almost it's more adherence to the old Socratic uh, lessons of philosophy when some people will say to us, that there are alternative facts to the facts that we think we know.